This is the Social Distance Podcast, and today I'm talking to Tom Hawking, who's a freelance writer based in Melbourne. Um, in March this year, as the first round of COVID-19 job losses hit, he wrote in The Guardian Australia that, and I'm, I'm quoting here, the Australian welfare system has always been needlessly cruel. Now it's punishing half the country. Um, Tom, thanks for taking time to chat with me. <laughs> we'll get to your take on Centrelink and um, drawing benefits in Australia in a minute. But first off, uh, we're talking on Wednesday, May the 13th, and this is the first full day of some easing of the restrictions in Victoria. So what have you been up to? Um, yeah, my, my first day of freedom, unfortunately, has been spent largely on the telephone. Um, we've, we've, we've had a bit of um, unpleasantness with our landlord. Um, when this all started, we asked them if they could... Uh, give us a reduction in our rent due to the fact that I have lost a large chunk of my income and so has my wife. Um, unfortunately, they were, uh, were, were less than keen to accommodate us, so we've had this kind of ongoing process with um, consumer affairs and residential tenancies and, uh, yeah, so I, I unfortunately spent most of the day trying to uh, trying to sort that out rather than uh, cavorting around in the sunshine. Um, without getting into any specifics you don't want to get into, is, is, it, is your landlord a large commercial landlord or is it... Um, an individual or it's it's difficult to know because they've not been particularly keen to volunteer any information um but but i can say with a reasonable degree of confidence that it's um it's an individual landlord it's not like a big kind of tenancy company right so i i can imagine that this is um a pretty uh widespread issue at the minute there's probably a lot of people going through this um is that been your impression when you've mm. been in touch with the various um, service providers? Yeah, yeah. When we when the real estate agent in Venice has been very helpful, and they've they've done their best to sort of you know uh, to remain impartial and and not take sides, which which you know I don't envy their position being stuck in the middle of this thing. But um, the the impression I've got from them certainly is is we're not the only case that they're dealing with. We we do seem to be the one in which the landlord is being completely intransigent. But um, but it seems that people are um general well not generally but a lot of people have been trying to renegotiate with their landlords and indeed this is you know, what the government is encouraging people to do to to come to voluntary agreements with their landlords. Mm-hmm. How how has how have the the past couple of months been for you? as a as a writer it's it's been pretty grim to be honest um honestly making a living as a freelance writer in australia is is pretty difficult at the best of times um just the the fact that the the industry here is so small because the market is so relatively small compared to say you know the uk or the us um means that publications here have never had a lot of money to throw around and they've never had the big kind of editorial staffs that um, publications overseas have had. But um, but even with that said, uh, COVID-19 seems to have um, made things even more difficult. And like like a lot of writers, I um, I also have you know other sources of income. I've I've been doing a bit of construction work on the side actually for the last few months, and that has just completely dried up. So, um, so yeah, between between the you know reduction in my non-writing income and the fact that all of a sudden nobody is really commissioning pieces and stuff, it's yeah, it's been a bit of a struggle. 
Yeah. Um, what does your wife do? Um, she's also a writer. Um, she works for a nonprofit that publishes um, a couple of magazines about uh, renewable energy and um, you know, sustainable uh, sustainable housing and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So in your piece in The Guardian in March, you mentioned about uh, coming into contact with Centrelink. Um, is that with the first time that you have been in touch with Centrelink since you moved back from the US? Yeah, I got I got back here a couple of years ago. Right. Um, having so, lived in the US from 2010 to 2017, and yeah, this is the first time I've dealt with them since. Yeah, so um, just for the benefit of anyone listening who's not familiar with uh, Australia, uh, what is Centrelink? <laughs> uh, Centrelink is the... Um, it's... it's the, uh, gosh, what is Centrelink? It is, you can it describe is it in any, any metaphor you... Yeah, it is. It is a terrifying octopus with uh, tentacles all around us. Um, it's it's the government's central agency for the administration of uh, welfare services. I guess would be a a good description of it. It's you know for for people in the UK, it's kind of the the equivalent of the the job centre where you go and where you go and sign on if that's what you still do these days. <laughs> and, and how would you characterise the essence of your of your experience? Frustrating frustrating I, I think it's important to to draw a distinction between Centrelink the entity and Centrelink the the staff because I you know actually actually this time I have not managed to speak to anyone at all but in the past my experiences with Centrelink staff have been you know, at least 50 50 I mean some of them have been not particularly helpful but a lot of them do seem to be there for the right reasons. They, you know, they genuinely do want to help people, um, but they are working within the confines of this system, which, you know, for the last god, the last twenty years at least, I think has has just been the um, the venue in which a kind of ongoing game of political one-upmanship has has played out, whereby successive governments have tried to. You know, be tougher and tougher on double bludgers, and you know, get Australians back to work and all that sort of stuff. And and all it all it really means is it just makes being unemployed more and more and more miserable. What are the mechanics that of how that has happened over? You know, I mean, you said 20, 20 years. It possibly goes back further than that. I, I was listening to something the other day that mentioned that the. The use of the term dull bludger might go back to the 70s sometime. Yeah. Um, again, so dull bludger being, um, for an American listener, it would be the equivalent of the Clintonian uh, welfare queen. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Trope, I guess. Yeah. A, a bludger is someone who refuses to work, basically, and the dull is, you know, welfare payments. Um can you trace for me, just as you, as you do in the piece, if you don't mind, can you trace for me the, the line... How that trope becomes this common shorthand for the undeserving poor, I guess, or the undeserving benefits claimants. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think you know Australians culturally, I think, have long prided themselves on working hard. So I think the the whole idea of the bludger probably predates you know, the welfare state. But um, but I think the the demonization of the unemployed and the victimization of the unemployed, um, as as with many negative aspects of um, 
Australia over the last couple of decades really starts with the Howard years. Um, Howard being John Howard, who was the the prime minister um, from the mid nineties, well into the two thousands. Um, and that, that, that was a period of increasing social and economic conservatism in Australia. The, uh, the process of, you know, deregulation of, of markets and stuff was put in, put into, uh, Put into action originally by a um, by a Labor government, but um, but the the sort of the the social conservatism that comes with that um, was was really a legacy of the Howard years, and uh, you know the, the as with conservatives everywhere, I think um, that government saw vulnerable people as people who could be demonised for votes, so. This this was the era that gave us the uh, the Tampa affair, which was um, should I explain that? Yeah, yeah, please do. Yeah, yeah. it was um, it was a situation whereby um, in in the run up to an election, a um, a boat full of refugees um, was was rescued, having foundered in Australian waters, and um, the government. Um, uh, pervade the myth that um, that refugees on this boat had thrown their children overboard uh, as a device to try to get people to to rescue them and bring them to Australia, and this was completely untrue. Um, but that didn't come out until after the election, and by that point, the election had already been won. So there there was a um, an, an ongoing, I think, tendency towards attacking victimized groups who can't fight back as a way of breeding a kind of us versus their mentality and ultimately winning votes for the uh, the terrible people in power so so that's a a, a well-worn playbook and I, and I, <laughs> I I I see so I lived in the states myself for uh, 10 years and moved here a couple of years ago and I, I see here very much how the political right learn from the techniques, um, particularly of the of the US, but also in the UK, and they sort of cross pollinate and so on. Yeah. Um, so that so so that's the sort of systemic thing. In terms of personal experience, how does that work out when you're actually trying to draw benefits? So, like, how do they go about making it difficult for you? What is that? Um, well, yeah, like I said, there's there's been a sort of you know every every uh, every government comes in with a a new measure to to you know thrash the doll bludgers into shape. So um, we've had a, a system called work for the doll, whereby you have to go out and carry out you know, basically menial labour um, in order to continue getting your welfare payments, menial unpaid labour, I should add. Um, there's been uh, a system called mutual obligation whereby you have to kind of drag yourself through endless series of questionable kind of skills workshops and resume writing kind of um, sessions and that sort of thing. And these these are all run by private service providers who are um, you know, pocketing a pretty penny for running them. And um, th these things are compulsory. If you don't attend them, then you don't get your payments. Um, so that's that's a couple of examples that I can think of off the top of my head. But um, I, I guess the common thread is that you're presented with a series of hoops through which you must jump through to get your payments. And if you ever put a foot wrong or 
you know, even give the impression that you're not taking the whole thing seriously or whatever, then no money for you. So what's your sense of um, what you do with a, with a doll bludger notion? <laughs> um, once a vast number of people are, through no fault of their own, propelled into a situation where they're completely dependent on benefits payments, what happens to that that idea of the the undeserving work shy layabout? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I when I wrote that piece in March, um, my hope was that people who have been propelled into the Centrelink system who may not have dealt with it before uh, might get a first-hand understanding of how unpleasant and obnoxious the whole thing is and how it makes life unnecessarily difficult for people whose lives are already difficult, I, you know, they've lost their jobs. Because um, I think it's, it, the dull bludger is, like many of these kind of stereotypes, um, ultimately the... It, it you know it's 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 something that is thrown about by people who do not actually know or understand the people they are stereotyping. Um, I I think the sort of people who rant about doll bludgers, you know, taking our money and being a leech on the state or whatever, most likely have never been unemployed, are arguing this from a position, A, of privilege and B, of ignorance. So my hope is that, you know, a first-hand experience of what it's like to actually be a quote-unquote doll bludger might, um, might soften people's hearts a bit. I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's unrealistic or idealistic, but... Um, you know, we can only hope, I guess. Do Do you have any sense of of that? If not necessarily that specific shift, but a more general shift in terms of Australian society, maybe taking a moment to consider how it remakes itself. Um, coming out, I of do, this? Um, I do, um, but. I'm not entirely sure that that is the case. I mean, clearly this is an unprecedented situation. Clearly there have been measures put into place that wouldn't have been countenanced by a Labor government, let alone a Liberal government, six months ago, you know, mm -hmm. doubling the dole, um, putting into place a um, an eviction moratorium, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they, these are, you know, these are... <laughs> These are um, these are not conservative economic policies. So, um, I you know, clearly this is this is a strange and unprecedented time, and I hope that what comes out of it is that people see that things do not have to be the way they have been. Um, you know, we we can provide adequate support to the unemployed without bankrupting Australia and so on. Um, whether whether things will change once September rolls around and all these temporary measures expire, or whether we just snap back to to how things have always been and pretend none of this happened, I I honestly don't know. I I really hope it's not the latter because that thought is really depressing. Honestly, I do have a sense that um, uh, it's going to be a battle <laughs> to 
achieve any positive outcomes out of this and to prevent it becoming a huge excuse for um, the dreaded austerity. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I th- this is kind of the opposite of austerity, right? Seems and like, um, well, it is at the minute, but but it is at the minute. Um, whether whether it, its legacy is is you know people arguing, oh, the government spent all this money now, so you know we need to go into another period of austerity to pay for it, um, or people saying that you know actually we can pay for these things. Australia is you know a country with a wealth of natural resources it's been running a um uh a, a uh, sorry i'm getting tired um no that's okay opposite of budget deficit surplus, surplus. Uh, it's been running a surplus <laughs> for uh, for quite some time so it's it's you know it's it's not like the country is bankrupting itself doing these things um which is which is always a um an argument that um the conservatives like to pull out you know that it'd be lovely if we could just pay for everyone's rent but we can't afford it and actually all of a sudden there's plenty of money to go around when people really really need it the question is ultimately who needs it like if it's the um if it's the middle class who has suddenly plunged through the trap door into unemployment then then all of a sudden there's plenty of money if it's if it's the traditional undeserving poor, then you know they just have to scrounge for what they can get. Yeah, absolutely. Are you are you optimistic? No, um, but I'm not pessimistic either. Honestly, I'm 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 just waiting to see what happens. Um, I, I have I will say I've been pleasantly surprised by the way the Liberal government has handled this. Um, I, I'm go on, tell me more there. Go on. <laughs> Oh well, I mean, you know, I, I'm clearly not a fan of Scott Morrison. Um, he is, you know, your, your typical liberal prime minister who's done his apprenticeship in the uh, immigration portfolio, and uh, his reward has been the big crown. Um, but after a after a period of you know kind of flapping and hoping it'd all go away and stuff, it does seem that he has seen that difficult choices need to be made and he has stepped up to make them. I mean, I credit where it's due. Um, I hope he learns from this. I hope he doesn't just go back to being Scotty from marketing, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. And just a couple of, a couple more things. Um, did you enjoy your time living in the States? How, how was that? Uh, I mean, enjoy is quite the right word. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's probably unfair. I, well, let I me did. ask you. Put it, put it mm. another way. Like, what was it like? What was it? How was it for you as an experience when you look back on it? I, I did enjoy it. Um, I love New York. Um, I I found it very difficult and very challenging living there a lot of the time. Um, I think, in in pretty stark contrast to Australia, um, all the realities of what is required to provide a privileged few with a very comfortable life are very, very much on show in New York. Um, unlike in Australia, where I think a lot of those things are sort of quietly tucked away out of view. So I, I found, um, I found that both, both, um, challenging and difficult, but also ultimately a good thing. It doesn't allow you to become complacent or comfortable, um, I found trying to survive there difficult, 
but then just personally in terms of the work that I do there's a lot more work there than there is here so ultimately I was able to live pretty comfortably um, I had some encounters with the US the US um, healthcare quote unquote system which is abysmal um, I you know the fact that people here seem to want to um, pull apart Medicare and put in place a private insurance system. It, it just astonishes me seeing how badly it works there. And you know, obviously we're seeing that with COVID-19, the disaster that is ensuing there. But um, but you know, long before that, my personal experience, and I think a lot of people's experience of the way the healthcare system works there is, is, is terrible. So, um, so yeah, I, I, you know, I enjoyed it. I made a lot of good friends there. I love the city. I think it's, you know, a beautiful country in a lot of ways, um, aesthetically, like the, the, the countryside there and stuff is, is lovely. Um, it's also a place that I think embodies the worst of capitalism. So, yeah. Good answer. (laughs) Thank you. I've thought about it a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, what what brought you back to? Are you from Australia originally? I am from Australia originally. Yeah. Why did you come back? Um, I came back because the company that I was working for ran out of money. Basically, um, I was I was the editor in chief of a website called Flavorwire, which was a yep. sort of arts and culture online magazine type thing, and. Um, and you know it was great for a few years, um, but unfortunately, the um, ultimately the the company that ran it, um, without boring you with all the details, they weren't really publishers. They just sort of stumbled into having this successful blog, and they they didn't ever really know how to manage it or how to to monetize it or how to make the whole thing work. So um, so you know, we did it on the smell of an oily rag for a, a few years, but it, it got to the point where it just wasn't sustainable. And, you know, I'd been there seven years. I, I was pretty burnt out by that point, having just, you know, worked very, very long hours and long days trying to make the thing work. And, yeah, so I thought enough was enough. My work visa was up. Um I couldn't stay in the country anyway without getting another job. So I came back here and um, I'm actually in the middle of a, an application for a green card, which um, my wife is American, which, uh, you know, God knows when that's going to be done now since Trump has uh, frozen all green card applications for six months. So, um, yeah, we'll wait and see, I guess. So do you want to move back then? Um, I have mixed feelings about it. Um, you want to have the option? I want to have the option. Um, I, I do because I can have a better career there than I can here. Um, working as a writer there ultimately is, you know, you stand to make a lot more money. Um, and more than that, you stand to have a, a somewhat sustainable and, um, reliable career where it's here. It's just, it's just hard, man. It's just hard. Tom Hawking is a freelance journalist and writer based in Melbourne, Australia. You can find links to his work at tomhawking.com, T-O-M-H-A-W-K-I-N-G.com. We were chatting on Wednesday, May the 13th, 2020.